Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. For centuries we've been using chemicals to improve health, but technology is set to transform the way medicine works. This month, five scientists on the cutting edge of pharmaceutical research talk about the latest in gene therapy, cancer treatment and more. Well, hello everyone. Um, First of all, we're really pr- pleased to see that we have a, a sizable audience. Really nice to see quite a few people. My name is E. John Richebo, and I'm from University College London. I work at the School of Pharmacy. Uh, my name's Stephen Hart. I'm professor in gene therapy at UCL Institute of Child Health. Hi, my name is Sejal Ranmau, and I am the director of formulation at a company called Intract Pharma, which is a spin-out company from University College London. Hi, my name is Wafa Al-Jamal. I'm a reader in drug delivery and nanomedicine from Queen's University, Belfast. My name is Catherine Tuleu. I'm a professor in pediatric pharmaceutics at the UCL School of Pharmacy. Great. So you've, you've met the panel, and uh, today we're going to talk about new developments in the area of pharmaceutical formulation. So um, pharmaceutical formulations have been around for a few thousand years in the form of pills and tablets, And um, today we're going to tell you about a few advances in those areas. And the panel is made up of people who have different types of expertise and are working on different types of uh, pharmaceutical problems. So I'm going to go first. Um, As I told you, I work in the School of Pharmacy. My area of interest is making pharmaceutical formulations using tiny, tiny particles. And the particles are very small. They're about a thousandth of the width of a human hair. And we tend to package drugs in those particles, and we use those to make new medicines. Ultimately, I'm here to talk a little bit about pain. Uh, One of the areas we're working in is the area of pain. So I'm here to talk about pain. And you know, most of us have taken painkillers for various conditions. I took a painkiller yesterday. You can probably hear I've got a bit of a cold. Took one for a headache. But I'm not here to talk about that kind of pain. I'm here to talk about the severe, debilitating pain that some people have that causes them to actually, causes adults to cry and causes people sometimes to commit suicide because the pain is so severe. So this is a problem... Um, which about 20%, it's estimated about 20% of European adults are living with chronic pain and have to take painkillers every single day. So what happens when we feel pain? When we feel pain, it's simply because we have some kind of tissue damage, some kind of inflammation. The pain receptors are activated. They transmit signals through nerve fibers, to the spinal cord, eventually to the brain, and we then have the perception of pain. And it has multi-dimensions. There's an emotional component, there's a physical component, and basically, pain is nature's way of warning us that something has gone wrong, and we need to attend to that issue. The more severe the pain, the greater the threat to our lives. So there are very many painful conditions, and 
as a result of there being very many painful conditions, there are lots and lots of painkillers. So about 70% of cancer patients, for example, experience, even though they're on painkillers, a very debilitating and acute painful episode. They have no idea when this episode will occur, and they need a very fast pain, pain, pain relief that acts really, really fast. So you also find that half of the people that go to A&E, they go to A&E because they have a painful symptom. And that's the reason why they present. Now, because we have many, many painful conditions, we have lots of pain drugs. We have the kind of pain drug that I took for a simple head cold, the kind of pain drug that most of you probably took if you were a victim of this current winter crisis, really surprising for the NHS that we have so many people suffering with flu and very severe colds. And so you probably took a painkiller. But for the really, really debilitating pain, there are a group of drugs called opioids. And these opioids, you've probably heard of them, morphine, fentanyl, and things like OxyContin. These opioids act on opioid receptors. These are very strong painkillers. Morphine, for example, is a very old painkiller. Now, these are really strong painkillers, very effective, but they have a lot of side effects. They have side effects, for example, they form, you, they get, you, patients get tolerant towards these painkillers. What that means is that each time the patient takes a dose, it works less effectively. And as it works less effectively, the patient then wants a higher dose. And the dose keeps on going up. And we know that when the dose is really high, we have other things kicking in. For example, you have respiratory depression. So your ability to breathe is depressed. Ultimately, that leads to death. We have other side effects, for example, constipation. Any of you that have taken morphine after surgery will be aware of the awful constipation that is associated with that particular um, um, medicine. You have other things like dependence. A lot of these drugs, these opioids, they cause people to have feelings of euphoria. And so again, more of the drugs are taken. At the moment in the United States, there is an opioid crisis. We have about 15,000 people dying every year as a result of their use of opioids. And that means that there are more people dying from taking their medicines than there are from dying in road traffic accidents. And then you add on the recreational users. So you probably heard over Christmas, there was a handful of deaths, about five or six in a single week. So we do need new painkillers, and that's something that we've been working on. We need new painkillers that don't cause analgesic tolerance, that don't cause constipation, with no dependence, we need these new painkillers. So we started thinking about what we could do about it. And then we thought about using a drug, well, a compound, which is a natural compound, which is secreted whenever we have a painful stimulus. It's called enkephalin. So all of us 
if we stub our toe or have a painful stimulus, we'll have a short burst of encephalin released into our brain. And this short burst of encephalin will dull our perception of pain by acting on these opioid receptors. But whereas morphine, there are three types of opioid receptors, mu receptors, delta receptors, and kappa receptors. And they're all slightly different in their activity. But they all do the same thing and offer us pain relief. So the encephalins work on the delta receptors. So we decided to see whether we could use this natural substance and make it into a drug. And to do that, we had to get encephalin into the brain. But encephalin doesn't easily go into the brain because all our brains are protected by what's called the blood-brain barrier. It is a barrier, a physical barrier, that stops anything that's in the blood going easily into the brain. But there are some things that go quite easily. So if you leave here and have a glass of wine, you will experience something going easily into your brain. <laughs> and hopefully, it'll um, make you feel a bit more relaxed. But encephalin is not one of those things because of its chemical structure. It's very rapidly chewed up in the blood. It doesn't last for very long, and it cannot get into the brain. So we thought, well, what could we do to get it into the brain? And so the first thing we tried is, let's squirt it up the nose. Now, at the very top of your nose, there is a little window of opportunity to get into the brain. There are some exposed neurons that help us smell. So you can look at that as a tiny hole to get things into the brain which otherwise wouldn't get there. If you take encephalin by mouth, it'll be destroyed in your stomach, destroyed in your gut, and will never get to the brain. If you inject it, also it'll be destroyed in the blood. We tried, and we couldn't get encephalin into the brain through the nose. And then we decided to wrap it up in these tiny particles that I told you about. And these tiny particles are made from crab shells. So we took the crab shells, you take a compound that's in the crab shells, and you do some chemistry around that, and you get something that you can use to make these particles. And when we put them in crab shells and stuck them up the nose, we managed to get encephalin into the brain, and we tested it to see whether it was working. And it was working in all situations. All our models, whether we had pain caused by heat, pain caused by inflammation, or pain caused by a nerve injury. It was working. So the crab shells helped us out in that case by allowing us to make these particles. And then we discovered other things about this new formulation. The other things we discovered is that encephalin doesn't cause any tolerance. And so how did we discover that? Well, we dose and dose and dose and dose and dose, and we use morphine as our standard. We dose morphine until it stops working. And then we dose encephalin for the same length of time, using our crab shell particles, and we find that it still works. But the best thing about it is that even if we dose and dose and dose a particular, set of, a particular group of our models, and we dose them until morphine doesn't work, and we then give our encephalin formulation, it still works. So what we're able to show is that we have something that works when we squirt it up the nose, 
only in these particles. We have no analgesic tolerance, very important when you consider the fact that the patient then wouldn't have to take so much more. And because it only works in the brain and not in the rest of the body, there's unlikely to be constipation. Because for, for you to get constipation, the drug has to work on the receptors in your gut. And so it looks as if we'll have very good differentiating features. The other thing we noticed is that when we dosed enkephalin, the animals were not seeking out even more enkephalin. So it didn't seem as if it was causing euphoria. It's very difficult to find out if a rat is euphoric. So, but we have a way of finding out if it's going for more. <coughs> and we found it wasn't going for more. So again, we, it looks as if we have something that may not cause dependence and addiction. We still have to test in humans. That is unlikely to cause constipation, definitely for which there is no tolerance. And because we are working on something that is actually going for mostly for the delta opioid receptor, then it's possible also, looking at the literature, that we'll have less respiratory depression. So, in the future, what we have to do is then see if all these studies are replicated when we test the formulation on humans. That's the next step. And I hope that for all pa patients that are living with really chronic, painful conditions, we can be able to offer them something that is working and is less likely to cause them harm. Thank you. Start. Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to be here, and thanks for coming on Wednesday night. So I will be talking about a slightly related topic to Professor Ijoma talking about nanoparticles, but I'll focus more on cancer. So what we are trying to do, we are trying to develop new ways to deliver anti-cancer drugs to treat cancer patients. Our interest focuses really on nanotechnology. So I'll give you a little bit of background about nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is the science focusing on producing and characterizing ultra-small objectives called nanomaterials. These nanomaterials, they are 10,000 times smaller than a human hair. They're really tiny in terms of structure and size. We have different ways to synthesize these nanomaterials, and they can have extraordinary properties like small size, light, a material with large surface area and high mechanical strength. Nanotechnology first uh, were described and used in industry, in um, transportation and energy, and also have been used in medicine. Our interest really in the medicine area. And if you have heard of a term called nanomedicine, which basically utilizes these ultra-small objectives to, deliver, to deliver therapeutic agents and imaging agents, offering precise solution for disease diagnosis, prevention, and treatment. So what are the current options available for cancer patients? We all know we have different treatments, and starting with surgery, where we try to remove the tumor mass from inside the body. It works most of the time, but in certain cases, it's not possible. Next, we see many patients, they are started with chemotherapy, which works by injecting drugs that they are toxic to cancer cells and hopefully that will kill cancer cells and stop the tumor from growing or spreading to other parts of the body. However, these therapeutic agents, they lack selectivity most of the time. 
which means they are also killing our normal cells, healthy cells beside the cancer cells, resulting in undesirable side effects like nausea and vomiting and hair loss. And this is what uh, we see in most of cancer patients, they complain about the side effects of the treatment. We have also radiotherapy, which works by exposing different the body or uh, patients to different types of radiations that will kill cancer cells. This will damage the cancer cell and stop them from growing and spreading, but also will have some limitations and affecting healthy cells as well. We start hearing about new treatments like immunotherapy, which works by posting the immune system. So we try to help our immune system to recognize the cancer cells and kill them. This works by introducing substances either produced inside the body or in our operatory to, to activate the immune system to fight these cancer cells. We also have cancer therapy, which we'll hear from Professor Hart, and uh, I'll just touch on gene therapy. It works by introducing a nucleic acid, which is part of our genome. Each cell has a gene, and we, have, we take part of this gene and introduce it into cancer cells. Why do we do this? Because cancer cells usually they have different genetic makeup compared to normal cells. Either they are missing a certain gene that we try to express, or they have overexpression in certain genes that allow them to grow and spread. And in this case, we want to silence this gene. And hopefully we can revert cancer cells back to normal. The optimum treatment for each patient, it really depends on the patient's condition and the disease state the stage of the disease. And in most cases, patients will receive a combined treatment, which sometimes increase the risk and the side effects as well. We have certain issues and challenges in, with these, all these treatments, summarized into delivery issues. So we have interesting drugs that cost millions of pounds and spend between 10 to 20 years to develop these drugs. But once we inject them into patients, we're not really doing any favor to the patients beside giving them uh, large and um, sometimes serious side effects. Why this is happening? Because we have to achieve high effective concentration, specifically at tumor tissues, without delivering and causing any side effects to normal tissues. So we need a way to make the treatment more selective to the cancer and protect normal tissues. We have also issues related to resistance, where we see patients start with certain treatment, then over time they are not responding and we have to switch to a different treatment. Why this is happening? Because we have insufficient drug concentration going to the tumor, which it's not high enough to kill tumor cells, but it allows the tumor cells to survive and start changing their makeup, the genes they have, to make them resistant to the treatment. And in this case, they don't respond anymore. We have also recurrence where we see people cleared from cancer. After 10, 20 years, they have cancer spread everywhere. Why this is happening? Because sometimes during surgery where they try to remove the tumor, we have residual cells that remain inside the body in a dormant state. So they are not doing anything. They cease dividing and they remain in a quiescent state while waiting for favorable conditions to start growing again. And this is where we see after many years, cancer is coming back, in fact, in all the parts of the body. So what we are trying to do, try to offer, no, to try to offer, uh, to offer novel cutting-edge approaches to offer um, uh, safer and more effective cancer treatments that will target both dividing and non-dividing cells in any part of the body. 
What we do in our lab, we try to encapsulate a wide range of anti-cancer drugs inside small delivery systems. Why to do this? As we heard as well from the previous speaker, try to protect the drug from degradation, because in certain cases where we talk about nucleic acids and proteins, they will be degraded by certain enzymes in our body. So we try to protect them, as well as prolong their circulation in the blood, because normally the drugs after administration, they will be cleared quickly through the kidney and the liver. So we try to keep them long in the body to allow them and give them the opportunity to go to the tumor. One example that we are working in our lab, we have liposomes. Liposomes, they are tiny structure, consist of phospholipids. They are a small version of our cells. So if you think of our cells, we have a smaller version that can encapsulate water-soluble and lipid-soluble material. In order to prolong the circulation of these particles in the blood, we try to reduce the size to around 100 nanometer, which is 60 to 80 times smaller than our red blood cells. So we try to make them very small, that would recirculate in the blood for a long time. But the size is one issue. We tried also to protect them with hydrophilic polymer, tried to make them hiding from the immune system that naturally removes foreign particles like viruses and pathogens from the blood. Because if the immune system recognizes them, we are not giving them the opportunity to go to the tumor. Packaging drugs inside tiny carriers will help to solve some of the existing issues like safety and efficacy. So what we are trying to do in terms of safety, because the drug will follow its cargo, it's not a small molecule anymore, it will behave as a cargo where the, the affinity to certain issues will be dramatically reduced, and in this case, reduce the toxicity to normal tissues. One of these examples is doxorubicin. Doxorubicin is a drug that is given to cancer patients, but it's known to have high affinity to the heart. So if you administer the drug in the free form, the drug will go to the heart, causing heart toxicity and heart failure. However, in the beginning of 1990s and 2000, we have a doxyl formulation, which is a phospholipid-based particle that encapsulates the drug and significantly reduces the side effects in patients. Because the drug is not small molecule anymore, what we try to increase also the tumor accumulation by utilizing a certain property at the tumor. Tumor tissues, they are different from normal tissues. How this is going to happen? We have imperfect structure of tumor vasculature. So the blood vessels in the tumor, they are different from normal uh, tissues, where they have small gaps, allowing small particles to accumulate there and release the drug. For certain drugs, they should be internalized, like protein-based or nucleic acid. Because of certain properties, they are not able to cross the plasma membrane of the cell. So we have to package them inside the delivery system and sometimes put a specific molecule outside that will bind specific receptor on the cancer cells and facilitate internalization. We have also other interests in developing responsive materials, smart materials, which means they will release the drug in, under certain conditions. And this is in response to external or internal triggers, like increasing temperature or use light, and that will increase the selectivity of the treatment and reduce side effects. Because where we don't have this trigger, the drug will not be released, and that will reduce side effects and save the tissues. We're also interested in combining different types of these materials, like to introduce different functionalities in the system. 
And one of the examples, we try to combine uh, our lipid nanoparticles with magnetic nanoparticles. And we use them for different functionalities. First, we use them as a delivery system to deliver drugs, but also the magnetic particles, they, have, they could be used as a therapeutic agent. Why this is happening? Because in response to a magnetic field, they heat up, which means the temperature will go up where they reside in the body. And this elevated temperature will kill the surrounding tumor tissues. We can also use them in something called MRI imaging to allow, them, to allow us to see where they are going in the, inside the body and if they are accumulating at the tumor site as well. So hopefully one day working with this nanotechnology, we try to offer a new and safer treatments that will treat cancer patients and that we can facilitate this translation because at this stage we work in the lab, but hopefully we can see this going all the way to patients to treat these cancer patients. Thank you. Good evening. So once upon a time, children were therapeutic orphans. And the reason why I'm saying that is because drugs have been traditionally developed for adults. And children are not small adults. They're externally different. Their weight change, their size change, but internally as well. The way they're handling medicines, the, the maturity of the liver, the kidneys, how your heart pump the blood and the... So there's been a realization that uh, we, it was actually quite unethical not to include them in trials. Uh, and the, the linking that to the practice is that for years, for, we've had to manipulate uh, formulation, dosage forms. So most of the formulation comes as tablets, even though we know now that adults are struggling as well to take tablets. But, uh, uh, so what do you do when you've got to administer to a, a baby? Well, people have been doing all sorts of things, crushing tablets, mixing it with whatever vehicle, milk, Coca-Cola for maybe older children, that would facilitate this administration. And uh, for some compounds, that can be problematic. And in fact, um, there is a, a bit of research that has shown that medication errors is three times more prevalent in children than in adults. And it's really unfair because they probably have less capacity than we have to buffer all those um, differences. So 10 years ago in Europe, uh, a European regulation on pediatric medicines was enforced. And the overall aim is to improve availability of, children, of uh, medicines for children, supported by better science around it. One part of it is uh, adapting what we do in adults in terms of clinical trials, because we might not be able to enroll so many children. You might not have so many blood samples. So there was a lot of um, clinical methodology developed there. But on, on our side, there was as well a, a, a remit on we need to adapt what we are doing. We need to think of our research being much more patient-centric. And, and it's quite tricky because to, to um, tag along what um, Ijeoma said, for example, for opioids, not so long ago I was talking to a company who was trying to develop uh, an opioid for uh, neonatal uh, abstinence syndrome because in America there are many babies born from addicted mothers and they have to be treated as well. So you need to have a, a dosage form that's going to deliver an incremental dose of uh, an opioid so that the baby is stabilized and then decrease the dose to wean them off. And it's very tricky because you're talking about most of those babies are premature. premature. 
so their weight very little. You need to adapt that dose to the weight of the baby, so that becomes really tricky. And as you can imagine, it's not a big chunk of the market. I mean, already children, especially in our country, when we talk about developing countries, there is much more children. But you know, so the drive for the industry to put all that effort, you know, is um, the reward can be seen as limited, even though they want to do the right thing. So, um, so formulation needs to be adapted. So. From that, uh, uh, so this regulation um, makes it obligatory for companies who wants to put an adult uh, drug on the market to look at the, at the children. If there is an indication in children, they have to develop a pediatric formulation and they have to test it in children. Even if the compound end up not being appropriate for children, this will be then be in the summary of product characteristics of the product, and then will give some uh, useful information for the clinician not to use it. And all those trials are all um, supporting the right dosing, which can be very detrimental in children if you can't, uh, if you give too much, you've got toxicity. If you don't give enough, it's uh, ineffic inefficacy. So there is a, a, a risk uh, benefit to, um, to uh, get there. So along this regulation, there's been a, um, a, a lot of uh, uh, thinking around, you know, how can we make better medicines for children? And, and on my side, it's how can we make the, 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 the product, the dosage forms, uh, more adapted. So lots of fields of research has emerged. And one is on excipients, because to make a medicine, we've got the drug. But you've got as well lots of other things you need to put into your medicines to being able to compress it, to be able to, for the, the product to be stable on the shelf for long enough, for recognition purpose, for the processing uh, of your dosage form. So th there is a need for what we call excipients. And in fact, sadly, there's been a lot of uh, um, issues around using adult medicines uh, in children where the excipients were um, uh, not safe. One example again, uh, the, the only um, licensed phenobarbital uh, preparation in UK contains over 40% of alcohol. So it's more than a gin and tonic. <laughs> and some calculations have been made on uh, the, the blood ethanolic concentration. If you dose a baby with the five milliliter a couple of times a day, they are above the drink drive limit. <laughs> and maybe the immediate side effect is the baby is going to be asleep. That's probably good for the parents. <laughs> but we've got no idea the long-term effect. And the blood-brain barrier, as it was mentioned before, is much more leaky in babies. It's not completely formed. So there is much more that goes to the brain. And you don't want to give alcohol to your babies, do you? So, uh, so excipients are an important stream of research. Another aspect which has been around the devices uh, to administer medicines for children. And um, this is a, a growing field because it kind of comes with the formulation and it's now called combination products. And this is a, a, a bit more complicated for the industry and it's it's... Um, heavy in the, in the development when you're starting to talk about combination products. So, for example, a few years back, uh, and it's very often it's coming from the food industry, there was this um, German company who developed a straw in which the drug in little beads was uh, protected by a film so that there was no bad taste and the children could actually take the dose just by sipping uh, in the drink of their choice. 
quite clever, but all those kind of uh, more advanced technology are costly. And um, although for food industry, people will buy that, probably for the consumer market, for over-the-counter product, people would buy it. For the prescription market, there is a kind of um, cost limitation, which is decided by the by the countries where you, you market the product. And that has been limited the innovation that we see in other areas into uh, me medication for children, sadly. But the know-how is there, and we, with time, probably we'll see an advance in that, um, in that area. Similarly, there is a lot of very clever things, and you know, we've already heard some uh, today on uh, technologies, formulation technologies out there. Uh, however, I think we're there is, it's, the, the field of pediatric formulation is very conservative because I think the, the best advance is still the, a dispersible tablet. So a tablet that you put in water, and in fact, because it's a solid, so in terms of production, manufacturing, uh, it ticks the boxes for the industry, so it's, the access is not limited by the technology, uh, and you can adapt the dose to a certain extent. But that's kind of, you know, where we are really in terms of uh, innovation. Again, the field around understanding what the need of the patient has grown because so far, and again, it's, it's a general field in the industry, you know, patient engagement, you know, what do patients want? And we really need to consider that for children. And when you move towards the, the teenagers, uh, even though in terms of ability to take medicines, there is a lot of behavioral aspect that you need to include into that because there is a lot of maybe stigmatization to be avoided at school uh, of the disease that can be visible by taking the medicine. So there is maybe clever ways to, uh, to deliver and, and improve compliance, improve you know, children not dropping out of their treatment by, uh, by making a formulation more acceptable. So again, it's a field of research that has uh, uh, evolved. And you know, for example, we did some work uh, on um, very small tablets. Because again, same thing, we are leveraging the technology of uh, tableting to very small tablets. And if you've got the right device, which is not available right now, but you can adapt the dose to the weight of the patient. And similarly, we've done some work around the use of multi-particulates, so very small beads because they're quite versatile. They can be given in a capsule, but again, with the right or in stick packs for which you can dose different weights of children, and they can uh, be coated, which um, uh, avoid the issues with taste. And that's where I want to, uh, to get to. Taste. As an adult, you might think that the worse your medication is, the better it's gonna treat your disease. <laughs> Doesn't work like that in children. Babies, they take it once, and then you have to fight to give the next doses. So it has been, again, a field that has been largely, uh, I would say, uh, um, not looked at in the, in the adult uh, development, because a priori, uh, companies will always try to make a tablet or a capsule, and you don't have issues with taste. For most of them, there is some, but... Uh, so now we've um, uh, uncovered you know, a, a big uh, uh, box of issues because if you start to crush those tablets and give to children, they won't take it either. So, you know, so there is a real need to, from the outset of development to try to um, uh, input that in your formulation development uh, to have a product that is taste masked. Again, there is lots of taste masking technologies. It could be uh, encapsulating the drug uh, complexity or put a coat over the old dosage forms, or add more traditionally 
lots of sugars and sweeteners, which in turn you know, brings you back to the issues with excipients. Um, so there was a, a, a field that has been, you know, of course, studied a lot in food industry because it's a big business to make products that taste better than your competitor. And uh, so there is lots of methodology out there to measure the taste, but we've got a slightly different problem, you know. Either you try to make your already really good chocolate even better because your competitors got a brand that is smoother, and a, but we've got something really disgusting to start with. And we are just trying to make it okay so that you know, this is something you can take off the list of the burden uh, of the treatment of the patient. So, and the industry didn't have that. There is, there is a research you know, in, in basic science around taste with using cells expressing receptors, and, uh, because we've got lots of bitter receptors as well, that's our natural uh, barrier to, uh, to poison. Um, but there was nothing really uh, regulatory ready for the industry to test the drug of their compounds at an early stage enough that you can make a decision, or will I need something really where I conceal the taste, or am I going to get enough, uh, to, get, uh, to get by with only a, a little bit of sugar in my formulation? So we have moved into the field of sensory pharmaceutics, which is a, a new uh, word, and, uh, and it's trying to having some tools ready for industry to do that. So at the school, we've got a unique model, which is a rat leaking model, and rats got more bitter receptors than we have, so they're a good model. Uh, and it's quite simple, so it has all been calibrated, and, uh, but the more they leak, the more they like it, the less they leak the less they like it. And then we've done some uh, human uh, taste panel as well, and we see an extremely good correlation. So that has been quite exciting, and you know, it's evolving, you know, how much can we use that model with formulated products, and so that's uh, an exciting field of, um, of research. And, uh, and I think, I'm, so I guess the end of my story is nice, because I think we're gonna see better formulation for children, and certainly some formulation which have been developed with the patient in mind and their needs. And in fact, there is extremely good example in the uh, HIV field where there was a lot of issues with um, bulky, costly, and really uh, poorly tasting liquids that were used for uh, some fixed dose combination. And they were really tricky to work with because um, they don't dissolve in anything nice, at least. And they're not stable, so you need a fridge, especially when they're in this liquid form, and they needed to be taken with food. So really not easy when you think of the setting in which this type of um, medicines are going to be taken. And now they've moved on onto those really small particles that can be mixed with milk, even breast milk, so that it's adapted really to the, 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 the where and how this medicine needs to be given. And, uh, and again, maybe to open up for some question. I think it has paved the way for shifting a bit how we, we think of um, the needs of specific um, patient population. And now there is a lot of discussion at the European Medicine Agency on the elderly. Because in, in fact, there is lots of commonalities in some issues uh, encountered in children, for example, swallowability the interface with a carer that is often needed to give the treatment. or uh, And, and uh, so there is a lot of reflection on, and same thing, do we need some special trials because there's going to be lots of polypharmacy, 
the doors, you know, you, you, lots of elderly are frail. And, uh, so again, so we might see a shift and, and leveraging maybe the knowledge that we've um, generated in uh, children towards the elderly population. So thank you very much. So thank you again, everybody, for joining us um, this evening. So I did my PhD at University College London under the guidance of Catherine, and it was a great three to four years that I worked in. And following my PhD, I had the wonderful opportunity of working for a new startup company. So what we wanted to do is, as you can hear, we do amazing cutting-edge science in university laboratories. And how does that translate to the final drug products that we're taking we wanted to bridge the gap between the science that we're doing in the university and what pharmaceutical companies are manufacturing and putting on the drug shelf. So that's what our company does. We want to work with companies and use the science that we've created in the laboratory to make sure that that, at the end of the day, reaches the patient. So my colleagues and I work in oral drug delivery. Um, so just taking a humble tablet or capsule, swallowing it with a glass of water, it takes a very interesting journey through our gut to get to where it needs to be to exert its effect. <coughs> and we at uh, our research laboratory try to understand the differences throughout the gut. So the stomach is very different to the small intestine and the small intestine is very different to the large intestine. And in particular, we have a big interest in the large intestine, so our colons. And what's interesting is that inside all of us, in our colons are trillions and trillions and trillions of bacteria. Lots and lots of small bacteria which work together with us to help with our health and also have a great impact on diseases. One of the statistics that's always out there is that there's more bacterial cells inside us than there are human cells. So we're actually big bolts of bacteria than we are men. <laughs> and one of the things that we want to do is harness the power of that bacteria to help with our health and also in helping treating diseases. So one of the things that's known about this bacteria is it's described as an organ, an organ like the liver's an organ or the heart is an organ, and the bacteria collectively is acting like an organ. And as we have organ transplants, heart transplants, lung transplants, you'll be interested to know that we can also have a transplant related to the bacteria that's there. And this is known as FMT, faecal microbiota transplants. And what's interesting there is we're taking stool samples from very healthy people, transplanting it into patients who have certain diseases, and taking poo from healthy people into people who have certain diseases, and it's having profound effects. So one particular disease is C. difficile infection. It's an infection that a lot of people get in hospitals. Um, it causes lots of cramping, lots of diarrhea, very debilitating. It causes deaths as well. And a lot of people, when they go into hospitals, they'll take a course of antibiotics. And in taking those antibiotics, it's helping to get rid of the bad bacteria that's in our gut, but it can also affect our good bacteria. And once our good bacteria has been depleted by these antibiotics, a certain strain of antibiotics can take over, and this is where we get C. difficile infection. How do you treat this C. difficile infection? You give antibiotics. So antibiotics are causing the problem, and then to treat the problem, you're also giving another course of antibiotics. So it can be a very vicious circle. One of the things that you'll find is if you go on the internet, people do 
DIY fecal microbiota transplants. So on YouTube, you can see people are showing methods of getting a food blender, getting your stool sample, processing it and taking it. And that's, that's the risks that people are taking and the degrees that people are going to help treat these horrible symptoms because they've tried antibiotics, they haven't worked, and you know, they're turning to the most you know, outrageous things to be able to do this, but it works. Um, so one of the companies that we worked with, uh, one of the medical doctors there told me a story which really resonated with me in that he was treating an elderly patient in hospital, taking courses of antibiotics, the C. difficile infection wasn't going, and he suggested to her, let's try this FMT, you know, as a last resort, let's see what happens. So she was given a course of fecal microbiota, fecal microbiota transplantation. The next day felt profoundly better, you know, going from that debilitating pain, bloody diarrhea, horrible, horrible conditions in a hospital bed to feeling amazingly better, and the next day gardening. So that transition period, just by taking this new therapy, was amazing. And what we're doing now is trying to work with companies to make that even better. So we know that a lot of this bacteria is living in our colons. So what we want to do traditionally, the way of transplanting the bacteria into the body is going through the nose, so by a nasogastric tube, or through colonoscopy. But that requires going into hospital. It's not a very pleasant procedure at all. And what we want to do is try and make a safer and easier formulation for people to take. And this is where we're looking at capsules. So if we can take the fecal material, put it into some capsules, and then those could be swallowed very easily, then it makes a much more patient-friendly way of giving this medication. This has now been aptly named crapsules. <laughs> I didn't come up with that, but it's sticking. <laughs> And the interest is that now we're seeing this in C. difficile infection, and it's having 80 to 90% cure rates, which is unheard of across medicine. But it's also now being shown to work in lots of other indications. So most recently, just last week, I heard a case report, a case report that was in China, of a young boy who had Tourette's syndrome. Um, for 12 years, was suffering with Tourette's syndrome, all the tics and things associated, and took a fecal microbiota transplant and it helped profoundly to, to help with these symptoms. We're seeing that now these fecal microbiota transplants are being used in neurological diseases, in autoimmune diseases, um, more recently even in cancers. So what we've seen is that we have lots of new amazing therapies coming out to treat different types of cancers, but lots of patients respond very differently to these medicines. A lot of people can respond very well, and there's a cohort of people that don't respond very well. And scientists have been trying to understand what are the reasons. And one of the things that we've identified is the gut bacteria of people who respond well to these cancer treatments is very different to the people who don't respond. They have much better diversity in their bacteria, a much healthier gut. So how could we leverage this information? We could, before giving patients cancer treatments, try and understand how their gut bacteria is and whether we know that they will respond well to these treatments or taking that one step further could we give them some good bacteria before they take their cancer treatments to increase the chances that they'll respond much better to this? Um, so the, the research is now moving from the way of taking stool samples, so full stool samples. We really don't know what different types of bacteria are in there, but if we can identify that one or ten or a cocktail of bacteria have this great effect, 
then we can use a more regulated version of scaling up these bacteria, putting them together, and then having these as new therapies for a range of different indications. So this has been a field that has been growing and has a lot of interest. And also related to the colon, we see opportunities to improve therapies for a lot of different diseases. Um, so one area is in the field of biologics, and this is what we're also researching in. Um, so biologics are medicines which have been acquired and developed from a living source. So these can be proteins, peptides, and they've all come from a living source. And the problem is that a lot of these therapies have to be injected. Um, it means that patients have to go into hospital, have to take very painful injections. For one of the medications that we're working on, every six weeks, a patient will need to go into hospital, sit there for two hours and have an infusion. Um, it's not a, a pleasant type of therapy. It costs a lot of money. It's not great for the patient and it's not great for the economy. The problem is that if we were to take this same medication orally, we have lots of acid in our stomach that will break down the medication. And we have lots of enzymes in our small intestine which are designed to digest our food, which can also digest our medication and then therefore... Um, render it inactive. But what we're finding is if we can deliver these medications to our colon, they survive much better. So the technologies that we're using are really to understand our gut and our GI physiology, understand where's the best place to deliver these molecules so they would work best, and then use our technologies to make sure that they get there safely, and therefore patients will have rather than having these injectable therapies, have a safe, simple pill which could revolutionise their treatment. So even a humble tablet or capsule, there's still potential to take the science forward and improve therapies for, for patients. So I hope that's interesting and <laughs> move to see. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about our work in gene therapy and how I think this is going to transform medicine in the... Well, it already is transforming medicine and, the, and its future, future potential for further transformation uh, in medicine in developing treatments for diseases that are uh, either in, untreatable, incurable, uh, and including genetic diseases, but also cancers as well. So uh, I think most people are familiar with these days with the concept of genes and uh, inheritance and genetics. So genes are really uh, provide the blueprint for uh, the human body. So our, our general appearance. So if you look around the room, everybody has their own unique set of genes, and we all have our own unique appearance. And so we're very familiar with genes for, for example, <coughs> eye colour, hair colour. But genes also play very important roles in uh, controlling in the body the development of key organs. So one of my diseases that I'm most interested in working on is cystic fibrosis. Uh, it's a genetic inherited disease that uh, affects the lung in particular. It's the major cause of, of death in CF patients, is, the, is uh, uh, diseases in the lung. But the, um, other organs, um, such as um, muscle, the eye, uh, all their, their development is all controlled by genes. And if genes go wrong in those uh, particular sets of genes that control the development of these tissues and organs, that can lead to 
uh, genetic diseases. So, for example, uh, cystic fibrosis is caused by, uh, uh, it's thought of as a, perhaps a rare genetic disease, but because of the nature of inheritance, the carrier frequency, and carriers, I should add, before I go any further, are completely healthy and unaffected by this, but the carrier frequency for cystic fibrosis is 1 in 20 people. So uh, if you think rare diseases don't affect you, there are at least 10 people in this room who are probably unknown carriers of a gene for cystic fibrosis and perhaps other uh, rare uh, genetic diseases, or perhaps not so rare. So um, genes, are, we can think of the, 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 the chemical structure of genes. So gene, there's a, a chemical, again, that we're all familiar with, DNA. Uh, so DNA, uh, we know, is, is found everywhere. It's been used for uh, detecting horse meat in our uh, burgers, for identifying uh, kings found lying around in car parks. Uh, but also, uh, it, it is the, the key chemical that, in, that uh, defines our, our, our genes. And if we're going to develop a therapy, this is the, this is the material that we need to develop a, a, a gene therapy. So uh, what is gene therapy? So gene therapy really can be defined as the use of molecules like DNA or its closely related RNA that can be used for any therapeutic purpose. So that can be for replacing a faulty gene, as in uh, the case of cystic fibrosis, um, or for switching off genes that might be involved, for example, in infections or in cancers. So there are many different applications of nucleic acids and, and genes in gene therapy. And what, so what is the, what, how do we make it work? Uh, how, do we, how do we do a gene therapy? Well, fortunately, one of the good things, as I've said, is that genes uh, tend to be specific for particular tissues. So if there is a faulty gene, as in the CF gene. We haven't got to get it into the whole body. We've just got to get it into the organs and tissues that are, that are affected. So our, our goal in developing a, a CF gene therapy is something that can be inhaled into the lung. Um, how do we get the, 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 the gene or this DNA molecule into the cells? Well, fortunately, we've already had a very nice introduction description of uh, liposomes. Uh, and that is one way in which uh, researchers are looking at de uh, delivering genes into cells, so these uh, non-viral nanoparticles. And that is part of the research that we do in my group at uh, the Institute of Child Health. Uh, another way to deliver genes into cells is to use viruses. And this is a, a, a very good idea because viruses, we're all familiar with having respiratory diseases like flu or bad cold, and they're all co caused by viruses getting their genes into your cells. So we can hitchhike, if you like, onto viruses in, and, and get genes into uh, cells in the lung or whichever tissue we want to use. Our approach is not to use viruses because we think they're a bit dangerous and they cause an immune response, but to try and make uh, something like a liposome something like a virus, some, somewhere in between. So it has the properties of a virus, but without the, the dangerous aspects, and it has the safety features of liposomes. So do, does gene therapy work? So uh, 
couple of years ago, I'd have said, well, it's very much in the research stage. But over the last couple of years, new commercial uh, products have come, have, have emerged, and there are now gene therapies commercially developed by companies for rare genetic diseases affecting the eye. So there is a gene therapy that can be used to treat blindness. And that is almost a, a miraculous statement to be able to, be able to, meet, to make. Um, there, there is a gene therapy that's uh, approved commercially for treating uh, 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 a leukemia by treating, correcting immune cells that um, will uh, cure the patient of the, of, of the uh, leukemia. And I can say it is a cure. So in a trial, more than 80% of patients that receive this gene therapy went into remission from their cancer. There's another uh, product um, called Strymvalis, which treats a very rare genetic disease called uh, severe combined immunodeficiency disease. Only affects one in 100,000 uh, births, so it's a very rare genetic disease. But in patients, they found that it was effective in more than 90% of cases. So these are very rare genetic diseases. In fact, ADA is one of those where there are far more researchers trying to develop a cure than patients with the disease. So clearly, we, the, the, but I think what it shows is the huge potential of gene therapy, and this is now being rolled out into a wide range of other diseases. And I, I've worked at the Institute of Child Health for 20 years and often felt I was plowing a lonely furrow trying to develop a, a gene therapy. But a growing number of colleagues are also working on developing gene therapies. So uh, what is the future for gene therapy? So I think we're going to see it uh, expanding and being rolled out for a wide range of other diseases. But it's also presenting increasing, because of the, the, the technologies and their precision, and the effects they have not just on uh, recipients of uh, patients being treated, but potentially their offspring. Um, we're entering into uh, a world where not only are we going to think about treating diseases, but people are talking about enhancing the, the, the human body. So, for example, uh, genes could be used to enhance intelligence, uh, the, the, uh, at the Olympics, I know they're very worried that at the, at the next Olympics there will be gene drug cheats, which will be almost undetectable. So gene therapies that can improve muscle, can improve um, carrying oxygen in the blood. So we're, we're entering, entering into an area of where there's uh, a lot of uh, important ethical questions to be considered. And who should be asking and answering those questions? Well, it should be us, all of us. Not, it mustn't be left just to scientists or politicians. It's something that affects potentially society. So I think there's a very exciting future potential for gene therapy in treating diseases. But I think we also need to think about the wider issues that these exciting technologies raise. So at that point, I'll uh, thank you for your attention.
So uh, now it's, it's over to you to, to fire us with questions. We've had quite a varied set of talks. We've, we've heard about um, sticking some, uh, some painkillers up the nose. Um, yes, we've heard about how we can heat up our tumours to get better and avoiding making our babies drunk. It's quite attractive, <laughs> though. Um, Transplanting poo, I see. Yes, that, that, that could be something that I think we'll all vote for. And uh, finally, we, we, we heard how um, we're going to have a whole new set of challenges at the Olympics, and, uh, and the Russians aren't coming. But, uh, <laughs> so, so, questions, please wait until the microphone comes to you. And I, I'm also going to look at the people in the very expensive seats at the top. Yeah. So please raise your hand so that um, there was a question straight away there. Thank you very much. Very interesting. There is, of course, an old and almost forgotten technology which has solved the problem of taste, swallowing, administering to babies, probably also transporting poo. <laughs> and that's suppositories. Where do you stand on that? <laughs> Catherine. Oh, I mean, <laughs> so, a bit of my, if I may say, pet topic, because being French... <laughs> I, I, I could almost say I grew up on suppositories, <laughs> but I've been, in, I've been in here for 20 years. There is a challenge we've got to uh, overcome, and I, I, um, that's a very interesting question. Thank you very much uh, for asking, and <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Uh, in fact, there has been some uh, interest, for example, in the developing countries, uh, and treating uh, neonatal diseases like septicemia or pneumonia in settings where the best option would be an IV, but you don't have that access because there is no trained healthcare professional, you're in the middle of nowhere. So it has been proposed as the uh, emergency first doses while the patient can be transported to hospital. And it's used in uh, malaria, you know, in situations like that. So th there is, there is uh, I think, a niche uh, application and, and I'm not quite sure so how to break the, the socio-cultural barriers. I think there is a raised interest in uh, neonatologists, at least the, the one I've been uh, talking to on, um, you know, because in essence it's the same absorptive membrane than the gut, you know, it's the same embryonic tissue, so the absorption is in theory the same. And it's, uh, there is no issues with taste, there is no issue. I don't think you can reach what you want to reach in terms of the location of the, the large intestine. <laughs> because it's, uh, it's, a, it's rectal drug delivery for the... <laughs> the and uh, what they're trying to uh, target is probably the higher bits in the large intestine where there is enough water for the, the bacteria to survive. But, uh, but yes, I agree with you, it's a really good option. And in fact, we've done some um, focus group at Great Ormond Street with some kids. And their main words were abuse, which shocked me because you, the same, you do the same panel in France, probably, or in Italy, you know, where parents prefer rectal administration in their babies than oral. Uh, you would, that would, wouldn't even be mentioned. But, uh, and, and they had no idea what it was, in fact, because they've never seen a suppositories in their life. So when we showed them, they were like, oh, that's it. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. And, and you know, there was a big debate, okay, is it okay if, you know, when you're a baby, when your parents is doing it, up to an age where maybe you can take care of your own personal hygiene, and then it becomes a bit more of a gray area. Can you, can you be in charge of your treatment, 
you know, without the, the grown-ups, you know, interfering because it's becoming a... Mm. So, that, 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 so that's, to my, in my, uh, you know, I really hope that we're going to move that because I think it's a really uh, good way to uh, administer drugs to babies. Mm. So we, 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 we like toilet humour, but not subsidiaries in the UK. No. <laughs> uh, Sejal, did you want to comment? No, that's perfectly. I mean, I okay. did my research in paediatrics as well, and scientifically, it's amazing, but, you know... And, and I worked in a hospital in the UK, and one of the parents said, why are there not many suppositories? Mm. She goes to France to get paracetamol yeah. suppositories because she went to her community pharmacist and... They didn't have it in stock and, you know, to travel over the channel, you know, to yeah. go and get these formulations. Yeah. I think there's, there's, I think parents who have tried to administer the medications to children and had those difficulties will definitely see the uh, advantages of suppositories. Any other questions? Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry, I can't see you there. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, I'm just wondering, many of the diseases we heard about this evening were physical diseases. Do you think that mental health will be a feature of the future of pharma in terms of treating um, mental health um, kind of diseases? Yeah, that's a very mm. good question. I mean, some of the um, technologies that I talked about um, concerning pain, so we, we are very interested in our lab of getting drugs in the brain. And we are considering some candidates, which are actually antipsychotic drugs, to make these into um, therapies that will be given up the nose because then you can isolate the therapy to the brain. It doesn't have to go to the rest of the body, and so you're less likely to get the side effects. So that's something we're actually actively considering. It's a great question. Mm. It's, it's, oops, yeah, sorry. Uh, hi. Um, I was just thinking about the future of animal testing. In the future of pharmacy, is there any sort of um, forward, forward motion in lessening or perhaps eliminating animal testing? Yes, so currently uh, animal testing is essential and legally required, in fact, in <laughs> developing new therapies, including gene therapies, no therapeutic could come to market without testing in animals. And we have to have models um, for testing the, these therapies. So we do use as much as possible. So in our cystic fibrosis work, we can use cells from human donors from, from the airways, which we can culture in the lab. And we do a lot of our development uh, on mechanistic studies in those kind of uh, models, but when it comes to testing our therapy to see is it really safe, then we have to use animal models, starting with with mice, of course. So, and I think that is not going to change for the foreseeable future. Um, although we are develop, constantly developing uh, and refining our techniques to minimise the number of mice that are used, and to make sure that the mice or other animals that are used, there's no suffering. So, uh, that, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? Mm. Well, 
Warfat, did yeah. you want to add anything? Uh, in fact, I would agree with uh, Stephen. So basically, at some point, we ha we try to do a lot of pre-testing in um, in cells or in 3D models that will resemble what's happening in vivo. But at some point, regarding toxicity and biodistribution, you can get very promising results by adding the drug to cells. But because once you inject the drug, it goes everywhere, we have to do it. But we try to be selective with the treatment, minimize suffering, and try to select the best condition that would give us some results and also maximize the amount of data we can collect using new technology where the same animal could be used for the whole experiment. So we minimize the number of animals used and minimize suffering while maximize the data can, we can obtain. Okay. Uh, hi, um, thank you for an interesting set of talks, firstly. Um, so it seems like the majority of the innovations we've heard are in the preclinical setting. Um, what's, what are the barriers stopping some of these innovations getting through to clinical trials and eventually to, to patients? And are we seeing anything change in there? I'll pass over to Sejal, you're in a company. Yeah, no, the that's really, very, very interesting question. Um, we've been quite lucky in that we're translating um, a lot of the research that's been completed in the laboratory and trying to find collaborators to be able to, to translate what we're doing to the commercial setting. Um, a lot of, as we were saying, um, work is done in a preclinical phase because with some of the newer technologies, we really need to prove the safety and really prov prove the robustness of the formulation before we take it to humans. And we have a lot of research that's done to give to make sure that we have the most safest option before we're dosing and that comes related to working with animals and doing you know lots of testing in the laboratory before um, so I think from the safety angle and, and this is something which I guess as scientists as well we want to make sure what we're developing is safe before we give it mm -hmm. to the first patient and likewise from the governance and regulatory side of things there's you know a lot of stringency in making sure the technologies we're developing but at the same time I think people are mindful that we want to make sure that the science gets to the bedside you know from the bench to the bedside as soon as possible um, so there are processes in place and um, other aspects that we need to consider and, and Catherine touched upon this as well with some of these innovative technologies is you know we can do some great science in the lab but commercially are these going to be economical are these going to be economical for countries that we're in but also more so in developing countries as well um, so we also uh, as scientists need to get that balance between making sure something's really progressive and the research is there but at the end of the day it's affordable for patients to buy and for countries and, and policies to be able to, to to afford that for patients so a lot of the times we also want to streamline you know the first prototype of a formulation we might make we want to improve upon that, make it something that's more cost-effective or, you know, more effective before we take that forward. Yeah. Loads. I was actually going to ask the same question as the last question, you know, how does it get to the, you know, our big farmer going to pick up these things, what's going to happen? But also, I suppose the thing I'd add to that is what about Brexit? Does it affect your ability to work with the rest of Europe and the EMA, go, you know, etc. Yes, I, I think that's, a, I'll, I'll take that one. I think that's a, a great question. As well as, we've got a really tough regulatory environment and so we should, so of course we have to um, satisfy the regulator. 
One thing that we also need is, is money to, to actually do all the experiments. It takes at least $50 million to, to get something from the preclinical space to the market. So we licensed a, a formulation early last year to a company who are, who are responsible for the clinical development. And we have to work with them all the time on the chemistry and on the various formulation aspects. When it comes to Brexit, of course, I, f I feel that that will impact heavily on the pharmaceutical industry and on pharmaceutical research. So one good thing about being in the European Union is that you have access to multiple talent from different countries. So you, you don't just have access to great colleagues in the UK, but you can actually work on funded projects with fantastic colleagues in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy, in Spain. And therefore, you can... <laughs> excuse me, come up with very excellent solutions because you're working with a big pool of experts. And this is fun these are funded things that you can do. So there is a fund where you can work with people. When it comes to the EMA, we have no idea what's going to happen there. We hope that we would still have to just get approval from the EMA in order to launch medicines in Europe. <laughs> That's the hope, but we have no idea. Very, very negative from my personal perspective. <laughs> I don't know if Catherine wants to, as a no, I mean, <laughs> French that, that national. Might, well, outside of that, <laughs> but that might really isolate <coughs> the UK market, depending how it's then integrated. You know, that might not be viable for a company to want to market their drug in UK if they can't have a, a European uh, submission. So. I think it's still early to know, but it doesn't look good. Yes, uh, my question is a follow-on to the question asked by the gentleman at the top. And this is, um, most of what you heard um, covers the early stages of uh, development. Can you name me a few medications that actually came in the market last year? That actually came in the market, just new medications. Yes, uh, during the uh, course of the past year that we can all benefit from, if you like. Okay, so, so uh, I told you that we, we were, were working on an eye drop, and so far bit for us to advertise our competitor, <laughs> but there was a new eye drop called Zidra that was launched. Um, it's Lefitigrast, it's called, but the, the name is Zidra. That was launched in the US last year, also aimed at dry eye disease. This was a new, a new medication, so for example. But normally we have, with the FDA approvals and EMA approvals, about 30 to 40 new drugs will be launched. And I'm talking about new chemicals. Of course, there are many more that are launched as generics, but about 30 to 40 will be launched in any year. 30 or 40? Yep. Every year? About, about roughly that, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, the th it, it, you may think it's good, but it's been kind of flat. So it's it's very difficult to find new drugs and get them approved. You would expect that as we have an aging population in the world generally, that we should have more approvals. But it's still it's been flat for about thirty years. So not really so good. But the pathway from uh, research on at the laboratory bench to becoming a, a drug that's launched on the market is a long and tortuous mm. process. Mm. It can take many years, at least 10 years. Many millions of pounds will be spent in developing and evaluating the drug. 
So uh, it's, 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 it's perhaps not... And I think the in industry, uh, Big Pharma have been... Their pipeline of drugs has been slowing down over, over recent years. So they're looking to develop wider ranges of, of new kinds of uh, therapies. So... Yeah. Yep. Um, there's a lot of talk in the news about antibiotic resistance and kind of the ticking time bomb that in you know 40 years we might not have any antibiotics. What do you think the future pharma can do for antibiotic treatment? Did you want to take that? There, there is. Uh, uh, did you want to respond? Okay. There is. Uh, <laughs> just trying to make sure I'm fair. You've, you've hit on a, a very real problem. Now, pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, and, and we're, you know, we work with the industry, it's more profitable to develop a medicine that's going to be taken every day of a patient's life, or at least for a long time. The thing about infections is that when you have a new antibiotic, you take it for not more, never more than two weeks. It's very rare that you'd be on antibiotic therapy for longer than two weeks. And then the infection's gone. So the returns on antibiotics is, is not as lucrative as these other chronic therapies. And that has created a set of, of, of disincentives for the industry to start developing new ones. Plus the fact that resistance is is a part of the way the antibiotics work. The bugs are always trying to overcome this hostile environment, and hence changing. So we do have a bit of a crisis. But quite recently, quite a few um, countries sort of got together, had a bit of a, a talk about it, and decided that they would be a little bit more proactive about trying to find new antibiotics. The UK was one of such countries, and actually launched quite a huge fund, I think it was... Um, about 18 months ago, asking people to come up with new ways to discover new antibiotics. So it's not all doom and gloom, but we do have to do a lot of work in the very short term in order to come up with new antibiotics. And there are also some incentives from the regulator. So if you come up with a new anti-infective in the US, you get a voucher that allows expedited approval for other drugs. And so this voucher, of course, is, is being traded, and these are incentives that the regulators and the government are offering to companies to come up with these new drugs. Very, very real question. I'd like, in fact, to comment on something. So one area is to develop new antibiotics, but also we see a huge interest, especially in the area of um, antimicrobial resistance, uh, to develop new materials that <coughs> reduce the risk of infection. For example, old population where they use different type of catheters, they start to develop new material that will have less, uh, they are less likely to uh, develop the infection, and in this case, we are reducing the risk of using antibiotics. Also in the area of cystic fibrosis, where the viscous mucus will allow the bacteria to grow and make them more resistant, they start developing new ways to deliver the drug. So one area is developing new antibiotics. The other area is to develop a new way to deliver some antibiotics or reduce the risk of bacterial growth and infection. And, and if, if I may just add one thing, I've heard of programs as well that were looking at very old antibiotics, the one that we probably wouldn't even know mm. the name of, to repurpose them and, and having a look at, you know, how did they stand now in the whole armada of antibiotics that are there. So 
I would just like to add on the, the counterpart of all this, of course, is the usage, the way antibiotics... Yeah. Antibi mm. So it takes many years, to, as we've already discussed, to develop new drugs and millions of pounds. And if they're not prescribed properly and their usage controlled properly, then quickly resistance will arise. So. Uh, many of the different talks that... Uh that we heard today spoke a lot, a lot about nanotechnology and particle science. So what I, was I was wondering if there are any other areas of material science that would have a massive impact on pharmaceutical in the future? Yeah, I think it's, we've got lots of areas, very interesting areas, so materials. I think the, the best way that science comes together is to use various different disciplines and so people work in, as you said, material sciences and see applications in pharma. And um, as we were thinking about the crab shells as well, looking at the natural world and seeing applications of, you know, a lot of the drug therapies that we've have taken have come from natural resources. So aspirin from bark and certain drug molecules from plants. Um, so I think this cross-disciplinary research really helps. And we've got gene therapies and nanotechnology and cell-based therapies and, and lots of new innovative types of therapies coming forward. Um, and I feel that the best science comes when we all learn from each other, so different applications for, you know, seeing things and how we can harness the power of, of other sciences into, into um, the, the pharma world as well. And what we're seeing now is, you know, the pharma world is catching up to that as well, so being more receptive to these type of therapies. So whereas some of these, you know, research-type therapies would have been dedicated scientists in their labs really trying to push this forward. Now we see that pharma is investing and seeing the value of this because they're seeing that, you know, compared to some of the older medications, these are more potent. Patients are uh, treating, being, you know, better treatments for patients. And ultimately, you know, there's the value there. So investing into these early therapies and actually helping them, you know, to translate that and taking that into their own development pathways as well. Um, so we do see that, you know, compared to maybe a few decades ago, the pipeline of products that different pharma companies have do incorporate gene therapies and, and different types of, you know, that research. So we do see that research translating, and we hope that in the next sort of 10 to 20 years, these will be getting to patients. Oh. You mentioned earlier that um, some of this FMT was used to help a, a boy in China with Tourette's syndrome. Yes. My question comes in two parts, to you and Stephen. Firstly, how could that bacteria help um, Tourette's? And secondly, Stephen, will epigenetics tri um, type treatments be used to help a condition like Tourette's? That's so a great question. No, that's a really <laughs> great question. Um, what we're trying to understand, so the science is moving forward in that we're trying to now understand you know how the bacteria in our guts are interacting with the human body and the cells in our body and that's a really evolving area of science and and one analogy I heard um, at a meeting was it's almost like we're flying the plane while we're trying to build the plane so we're trying to take this research forward and and try and you know understand how this bacteria is working and try and translate it to therapies but at the same time you know, that really basic science of what's actually happening here 
you know, we're trying to understand that as well. And actually, the science has moved forward. So when we think about different types of bacteria, once upon a time, we could only say, you know, this bacteria is part of this family. And we could classify different bacteria very broadly in terms of their, their family types. But now, as our science has evolved, we can try and detect, you know, down to a species level. So we can say that this is this type of species or, you know, really go down to those sort of bacterial species. Um, and by understanding more about those interactions with humans, we can then, you know, to know that it's not just broadly this family, but this particular type of bacteria, then if we can isolate that bacteria and, and scale it up, then that could be a therapeutic. So it's almost running in parallel. This, I, the FMT has been a really interesting area. And actually, some of this was done a very long time ago. So, you know, if I, there was a paper I saw in the 1950s where, you know, a clinician had done a, patient, a, a study in less than 20 patients and shown, you know, this works really well. And the conclusion of that study was we need to investigate this in more detail. And there's, you know, that lag time. And, and FMTs have really come from public and understanding how people are using their medicines and what they're using and then you know you understand from understanding more about how people are people are using therapies and treating their own conditions and then we identify areas where oh that's something interesting there it's similar to how natural products and things were discovered as well um, mm -hmm. so as a science is moving forward in that we're we're developing that and trying to understand that interaction and that's where a lot of the science is now going to be focused um, to making sure that, again, the bacteria that we choose, are they safe? Are they working as effectively as we did? Um, so there's opportunities there, but again, the science and the industry is also taking a very stepwise, progressive approach in not, you know, putting these therapies together, but really understanding how they work. And a lot of that is the interaction. So if we think of Tourette's, for example, um, we know scientifically that there's an axis that links the gut and the brain. And so understanding, you know, the bacteria in the gut, we know that's, you know, the gut-brain axis is well established in science. But the interactions which are leading to that, that's science that's, you know, increasing every day. And if we think about the number of papers that are coming up in this area, it's gone exponentially. So lots of scientists around the world. And, and to come together and share that research will help us progress it to, to the next regions. On, on a genetic approaches to treating Tourette's, I'm not aware of the, the genes that are, that are involved in, uh, in Tourette's syndrome. So first of all, uh, we'd need to know more about what are the genes that, 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 are, that are affected. Is it, is, is it an epigenetic mechanism? Uh, I'm not sure about that. And then we'd need to know some kind of uh, biochemical pathway that we could then use our genes to test in cell culture models. Uh, I'm wondering if there are uh, animal models of Tourette syndrome, but I'm not sure how that would manifest. But, <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I think we need to know. I'm not. I, I, yeah, it's not an area I'm familiar with, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting question. Well, Thank you. Just read the book, the uh, Epigenetics Revolution. Yes. I've heard of, and she mentioned it and the mechanism in that. Okay. May like to have a look into it. I would. I'd be fascinated. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It does explain. It. It's a bit complicated. <laughs> um, I'm sure. But, but some, it, it may get a few brain cells going. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you were mentioning that you were using um, a nanoparticle that's magnetic attached to a drug, and then working out, scanning MRI, where it had gone. 
Has anyone actually tried to make the site that you want to uh, use the drug magnetic and then uses your magnetic particles to concentrate at the point that you really want to use it? Very Ruffle. good question, yeah. So basically, uh, one of the areas maybe I didn't mention is a magnetic targeting. So one of the areas, so magnetic particles that are interesting because they could be used in imaging, they could be used uh, in hyperthermia, and we have few clinical trials. Uh, if we inject the particles locally in the brain or in the liver, then we can apply the magnetic field, and that will heat up and kill tumor cells. Uh, one of the areas is uh, targeting as well, where we try to apply um, uh, the magnet. So we inject the particles and we concentrate, we apply the magnet, say, to a certain area we want them to accumulate. And we have shown that we have a significant increase in the tumor accumulation. So one of the areas is magnetic targeting, but we need to work with the certain companies to design a magnet that will be suitable like to where if we are targeting the brain or certain areas because uh, extracting the particles from the bloodstream to certain issues is a bit challenging, but having the right size of the magnet and all of this without affecting the normal function of certain organs is possible. Yeah. So we've come to the end of our time, I believe. And um, I really want to thank my pa fellow panellists, Catherine Tulu, Wafa Jamal, Senja Rama, and um, Stephen Hart, and myself, Ijeoma Chewood. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>